Chapter Five, Part Two of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Peary. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Five: Tendencies in American. Part Two: Points of Difference these exchanges and coalescences however though they invigorate each language with the blood of the other and are often very striking in detail are neither numerous enough nor general enough to counteract the centrifugal force which pulls them apart the simple fact is that the spirit of english and the spirit of american have been at odds for nearly a century and that the way of one is not the way of the other the loan words that fly to and fro when examined closely are found to be few in number both relatively and absolutely they do not greatly affect the larger movements of the two languages many of them indeed are little more than temporary borrowings they are not genuinely adopted but merely momentarily fashionable the class of englishmen which affects american phrases is perhaps but little larger taking one year with another than the class of americans which affects english phrases this last class it must be plain is very small leave the large cities and you will have difficulty finding any members of it it is circumscribed not because there is any very formidable prejudice against english locutions as such but simply because recognizably english locutions in a good many cases do not fit into the american language the american thinks in american and the englishman in english and it requires a definite effort usually but defectively successful for either to put his thoughts into the actual idiom of the other the difficulties of this enterprise are well exhibited though quite unconsciously by w l george in a chapter entitled litany of the novelist in his book of criticism literary chapters this chapter it is plain by internal evidence was written not for englishmen but for americans a good part of it in fact is in the second person we are addressed and argued with directly and throughout there is an obvious endeavor to help out comprehension by a studied use of purely american phrases and examples one hears not of the east end but of the east side not of the city but of wall street not of belgravia or the west end but of fifth avenue not of bowler hats but of derbies not of idlers in pubs but of saloon loafers not of pounds shillings and pence but of dollars and cents in brief a gallant attempt upon a strange tongue and by a writer of the utmost skill but a hopeless failure none the less in the midst of his best american george drops into briticism after briticism some of them quite as unintelligible to the average american reader as so many gallicisms on page after page they display the practical impossibility of the enterprise back garden for backyard perambulator for baby carriage corn market for grain market coal owner for coal operator post for mail and so on and to top them there are english terms that have no american equivalents at all for example kitchen fender 
the same failure perhaps usually worse is displayed every time an english novelist or dramatist essays to put an american into a novel or a play and to make him speak american however painstakingly it is done the englishman invariably falls into capital blunders and the result is derided by americans as mark twain derided the miner's lingo of bret hart and for the same reason the thing lies deeper than vocabulary and even than pronunciation and intonation the divergences show themselves in habits of speech that are fundamental and almost indefinable and when the transoceanic gesture is from the other direction they become even plainer an englishman in an american play seldom shows the actual speech habit of the sassenach what he shows is the speech habit of an american actor trying to imitate george alexander there are not five playwrights in america said channing pollock one day who can write english that is the english of familiar discourse why should there be replied lewis sherwin there are not five thousand people in america who can speak english the elements that enter into the special character of american have been rehearsed in the first chapter a general impatience of rule and restraint a democratic enmity to all authority an extravagant and often grotesque humor an extraordinary capacity for metaphor in brief all the natural marks of what van wyck brooks calls a popular life which bubbles with energy and spreads and grows and slips away ever more and more from the control of tested ideas a popular life with the lid off this is the spirit of america and from it the american language is nourished brooks perhaps generalizes a bit too lavishly below the surface there is also a curious conservatism even a sort of timorousness in a land of manumitted peasants the primary trait of the peasant is bound to show itself now and then as wendell phillips once said more than any other people we americans are afraid of one another that is afraid of opposition of derision of all the consequences of singularity but in the field of language as in that of politics this suspicion of the new is often transformed into a suspicion of the merely unfamiliar and so its natural tendency toward conservatism is overcome it is of the essence of democracy that it remain a government by amateurs and under a government by amateurs it is precisely the expert who is most questioned and it is the expert who commonly stresses the experience of the past and in a democratic society it is not the iconoclast who seems most revolutionary but the purest the derisive designation of highbrow is thoroughly american in more ways than one it is a word put together in an unmistakably american fashion it reflects an habitual american attitude of mind and its potency in debate is peculiarly national too i dare say it is largely a fear of the weapon in it and there are many others of like effect in the arsenal which accounts for the far greater prevalence of idioms from below in the formal speech of america than in the formal speech of england there is surely no english novelist of equal rank 
whose prose shows so much of colloquial looseness and ease as one finds in the prose of howells to find a match for it one must go to the prose of the neo-celts professedly modelled upon the speech of peasants and almost proudly defiant of english grammar and syntax and to the prose of the english themselves before the restoration nor is it imaginable that an englishman of comparable education and position would ever employ such locutions as those i have hitherto quoted from the public addresses of dr wilson that is innocently seriously as a matter of course the englishman when he makes use of coinages of that sort does so in conscious relaxation and usually with a somewhat heavy sense of doggishness they are proper to the paddock or even to the dinner-table but scarcely to serious scenes and occasions but in the united states their use is the rule rather than the exception it is not the man who uses them but the man who doesn't use them who is marked off their employment if high example counts for anything is a standard habit of the language as their diligent avoidance is a standard habit of english a glance through the congressional record is sufficient to show how small is the minority of purists among the chosen leaders of the nation within half an hour turning the pages at random i find scores of locutions that would paralyze the stenographers in the house of commons and they are in the speeches not of wild mavericks from the west but of some of the chief men of the two houses surely no senator occupied a more conspicuous position during the first year of the war than lee s overman of north carolina chairman of the committee on rules and commander of the administration forces on the floor well i find senator overman using to enthuse in a speech of the utmost seriousness and importance and not once but over and over again i turn back a few pages and encounter it again this time in the mouth of general sherwood of ohio a few more and i find a fit match for it to wit to biograph the speaker here is senator l y sherman of illinois in the same speech he uses to resolute a few more and various other characteristic verbs are unearthed to demagogue to dope out to fall down in the sense of to fail to jack up to phone to peeve to come across to hike to butt in to backpedal to get solid with to hooverize to trustify to feature to insurge to haze to reminisce to camouflage to play for a sucker and so on almost ad infinitum and with them a large number of highly american nouns chiefly compounds all pressing upward for recognition tin lizzy brainstorm come down pinhead trustification pork barrel buck private doughboy cow country and adjectives jitney bush for rural balled up dolled up phony tax paid footnotes balled up and its verb to ball up were originally somewhat improper no doubt on account of the slang significance of ball but of late they have made steady progress toward polite acceptance after the passage of the first war revenue act cigar boxes began to bear this inscription 
the contents of this box have been taxed paid as cigars of class b as indicated by the internal revenue stamp affixed even tax paid which was later substituted is obviously better than this clumsy double inflection End of footnotes. and phrases dollars to doughnuts on the job that gets me one best bet and back formations ad movie photo and various substitutions and americanized inflections over for more than gotten for got in the present perfect rile for royal bust for burst this last in truth has come into a dignity that even grammarians will soon hesitate to question who in america would dare to speak of bursting a bronco or of a trust burster footnote bust seems to be driving out burst completely when used figuratively even in the literal sense it creeps into more or less respectable usage thus i find a busted tire in a speech by general sherwood of ohio in the house january twenty fourth nineteen eighteen the familiar american derivative buster as in buster brown is unknown to the english End of footnote. End of chapter 5, part 2.